Optus hack. I think the Australian public should expect more from any business that collects uh, their personally identifiable information and, and, and ID documents. State surveillance in China. I mean, the appeal for a lot of governments, obviously, if they're autocratic, is that these are tools that China has shown can be used to maintain social control, uh, really, really tight social control. And potential UN reform. But I think what we're also starting to see, and we saw this alluded to in the remarks by President Biden, of course, is that there is a recognition that the legitimacy of the council is of concern. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Last week, Optus notified the media and its customers that personal data had been compromised in a cyber attack. The compromised data included names, dates of birth, postal addresses, driver's licenses, and passport numbers. Fergus Hansen and Jocelyn Kang discussed the implications of this breach, the dangers of cyber attacks on critical infrastructure, and why Australia should consider prohibiting the payment of ransom demands. Well, Jocelyn, it's great to be with you on, um, I think, your last day at Aspie for a little while. I, the first question I had for you is, we've had this massive breach of data from, at Optus. It, it's been all over the media. We've had the minister come out with some really strong statements uh, about the breach. Why is this such a big deal? I think a lot of people would think that it's such a big deal because 9.8 million customer records are potentially being leaked out into the public. But for me, I think it's more about the sensitivity of the data that was lost. So in particular, the ID documents in conjunction with personally identifiable information like someone's name and address. So I think that's the real reason why this is such a impactful leak. So we're talking about, what, like 100 points of ID being stolen on people. What is that going to mean for you know the average kind of person? Yeah, exactly. It's hundred points of ID. It's this is the kind of information that you would use to verify your identity. So it's also the perfect ingredients for if someone was going to commit identity fraud on these victims as well, or scams, or you know subject them to some sort of manipulation. I'm one of the lucky people that was uh, caught up in the hack, Jocelyn. So what does this mean in terms of? I mean, how can we do this better? There's schemes out there like the digital identity. Is that the type of thing that we need to prevent this type of thing from occurring again? I think definitely the digital identity system can play an important part in the future by reducing the amount of information that service providers like Optus actually have to collect and store. Because if you think about it, if, if the purpose of the collection of a customer's information is for identity verification, then they just need to verify that person is who they say they are. They don't actually need to take the raw details from them. So the digital identity system, what it can do is that it can be a source of assurance for companies like Optus as the what the customer do, would do is verify their identity within the government's digital identity system. The customer will be provided with a verified digital identity and then they can use that with service providers like Optus and give them assurance that, yes, this person is who they say they are. So with a digital ID, basically what we're talking about is an ability for companies to verify without actually needing to ever see or cite any of the documents that are underlying that identity. Exactly. And 
the data that a company doesn't hold can't be stolen. I mean, given that we're in this world that we are in now, is it reasonable for Australians to expect that a company like Optus would be storing their data in a more secure way or is every system just got vulnerabilities and you can, you know, everything's ultimately compromised, you know, you can compromise any system so it's just bad luck? I think the Australian public should expect more from any business that collects uh, their personally identifiable information and, and, and ID documents. Yes, look, cybersecurity is hard. You're, I think it's near impossible to actually secure a network 100% of the time from 100% of attacks. It doesn't mean that companies shouldn't try. Um, and maybe there's something we can learn from the way that cyber insurance is now handled. So in my opinion, the, the, the better cyber insurers are the ones who don't just hand out cyber insurance to anybody, but in fact say to their potential customers, hey, look, we'll only insure you if you meet certain criteria that shows us that you've actually put in effort and put in these security, implemented these security controls to protect your customer data and your systems. So Fergus, you had an op-ed out today saying that we should ban ransoms. How were you thinking that would work? Well, this has sort of been agonised over for so long. There's all these arguments. It seems simplistic on one level to want to ban ransom payments. The idea behind banning them is that if you, the reason why Australian companies and organisations are targets of ransomware attacks is because we pay. And if we ban payments and therefore we're not paying anymore, then the cyber criminals will go and find somewhere else where they can get people to pay. It's a bit of an unsavory reality that they're going to go after, you know, go to other countries that where they are, people are willing to pay. But if we can stop ransom payments in Australia, at least Australian businesses and organisations will be protected from ransomware attacks. That's the theory. Now, people say, well, what if it's a hospital that's attacked and there's, an, there's a threat to life and somebody, you know, urgently needs to be paid to get systems back up and operational? Or people will say, well, we create a ban on ransomware payments and a company does pay, then the government is obliged to enforce that law and they'll have to prosecute an Australian company for paying a ransom and that's victimising the victim. There's a case for those arguments, but we've got to think about the greater good here. And the greater good is that we need to try and protect all Australian companies from the billions of dollars that they're spending annually on ransom payments. So if we have to prosecute one or two companies for the first couple of months of this scheme, uh, which would I think would be all it would take to dry up the market here, then we might have to do that. Uh, one or two companies being prosecuted, though, is a small price to pay for being able to protect the entire Australian nation. Now, the hospital case, I think that's that's a tricky edge case. Uh, right now, we in, in the permissive environment we have, there's an incentive to go after hospitals. So cyber criminals want to target hospitals because they'll be so desperate they, they'll, they'll pay. And we see them going after critical infrastructure operators for the same reason. So we've, in the current system, we've actually got an incentive to target these vulnerable locations. And we're also seeing even people die. So in Germany, a hospital was attacked and a, and a patient died when their ambulance had to be redirected. So I don't think it's cut and dried case that our system right now is perfect. People are dying in ransomware attacks, actually, uh, and they're being incentivized to target hospitals. So I think there's a, there's a real question there about whether we really do have the best framework right now. Uh, and I think you could also have a model where you could potentially have carve-outs for emergency situations where you could get a waiver from a department or, or so on to, to pay the ransom if, if it was absolutely necessary. 
So that's kind of the idea. I think it, we've, we've reached the point where we should be trying this. Um, if you look at the situation we're in right now with the Optus attack, half the population is potentially going to be vulnerable to identity fraud, potentially caused by one individual messing everyone around. I think that is an unacceptable situation. And as a nation, we need to sort of confront these hard policy challenges and, and bite the bullet and try something different. We're definitely going to try something different. And um, talking about incentives, you've also suggested that um, we should start imposing fines on companies who have their data stolen. What's your thinking there? Well, to me, the, the incentive structure is a little bit off here because if a cyber criminal steals data from, say, Optus, the cost to Optus are really reputational. The true cost of fixing that problem is the customers. So, you know, me as a, an Optus customer has to potentially go and change my identity documents. If it's my passport and my driver's license, that could be hundreds of dollars that I'll spend just in sort of raw costs. Then there's the sort of the physical effort you have to go to to fill out the forms and and get the you know explain why your your documents need to be changed. Uh, you might be a victim of identity fraud, and then you have to go to your bank and explain that it wasn't you that you know spent the money on whatever thing or some other aspect of your life might be compromised and you'll have to spend you know hours and hours and hours of your own time trying to wind your way out of that and all of that adds up cumulatively to probably thousands of dollars worth of every Australian's time so should that be a cost that every consumer has to just wear or should it be the responsibility of the companies that haven't been storing the data correctly now, to me, I think we've got to strike a better balance here because what you want to do is try to deter companies from storing data unnecessarily that creates these kind of costs to their customers. And for companies that do need to store data by law or because um, they, need, they want to you know, use it for other purposes, which might be legitimate, like marketing or whatever, they should have to make a reasonable trade-off balancing all the costs and risks. So they need to sort of price the risk of, of losing the data uh, because of the, the cost that that will have on their customers, who they should, I think, recompense for any loss of their data. And so I think we've got to get that balance right in the same way that we're now starting to price carbon in climate change and put a price on carbon. I think we need to put a price on the on identity theft and and, and have companies pass any costs that can, customers might have to wear, you know, pass that through so that they reimburse customers for that type of uh, loss that they might face. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the coming weeks. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Jocelyn, fantastic to chat. Thanks, Fergus. Since 2017, the Wall Street Journal's Lisa Lin and Josh Chin have been covering the CCP's increasing use of surveillance technology to control society, which is featured in their new book, Surveillance State. Dr. Samantha Hoffman speaks to Lisa and Josh about the use of surveillance tech in smart cities and the challenges of reporting on China following their expulsion. I'm very excited to be joined today by Lisa Lin and Josh Chin. They are the authors of a new book called Surveillance State, published by St. Martin's Press. Both Josh and, and Lisa are award-winning journalists for the Wall Street Journal. Surveillance State is a book about the Chinese party state's development and use of technology to enhance its political control. But it also discusses the, the use of technology elsewhere, including in democracies, and, and asks some important questions around the, that topic. So we'll jump straight into the interview. And I was wondering, Josh and Lisa, if you can give our listeners a brief overview of the book and, and also what, what drove you to write it now. Right. So this is a book basically about the Chinese Communist Party is, is using 
huge amounts of data and combining that with AI to sort of reboot authoritarianism, to sort of create a new, more nimble form of authoritarianism as a means to, to exerting more social control. And, you know, it started actually originally with a, a series that, we, that Lisa and I both worked on for the Wall Street Journal back in 2017 when, when you know, these sorts of AI-driven surveillance tools were first starting to come onto the scene. Tools like facial recognition, gait recognition, that sort of thing. And, you know, I think it really took form in our minds as a potential book at the end of 2017 when uh, um, I went to Xinjiang with a colleague and we saw, you know, what the Communist Party was doing there with these technologies, using them to, to essentially create a sort of digital totalitarian environment where 14 million Turkic Muslim minorities were being tracked and categorized, and, and some of them were being sent off to, to re-education camps. Um, you know, and that, that was such an unprecedented and, and really just shocking development that we, we felt, you know, eventually that, that we really needed a book to be able to unpack what was happening. And the book actually, so, so Josh talked about how it began in 2017. We wanted to publish the book earlier and then the coronavirus hit. And with COVID-19, what happened was it ushered in a new era of state surveillance in China that we'd never seen before. Essentially, we had gone from, you know, persons of interest or certain groups of people in China being tracked to the entire population being tracked. So we kind of delayed our book for a bit to analyze what was happening over the coronavirus and to include that. And that became a very important chapter as well. And, and that was actually a, a question that I had for you was, how did the pandemic affect your ability to do research on the book, um, given that access to China became, uh, well, impossible? And, and you had you were both in China, but then you both left prior to the pandemic. Am I correct? So Lisa had actually left China a couple of years earlier, she had relocated to, to Singapore, although she was traveling back and forth to China. And then I was actually expelled from China right when the pandemic was happening. I was just kicking off. It was uh, kind of part of what has evolved into a, a media war between China and the U.S. But, but yeah, so just as we were wrapping up the book, actually, the pandemic hit, I was expelled. China closed its borders, so Lisa couldn't go back in. And so, yeah, we were, we were sort of forced to do the rest of the reporting on the book remotely. And that just, you know, in the end, it kind of evolved, it involved a lot of phone calls, a lot of document, documentary research, a lot of, you know, the sort of things that, that foreign reporters have been doing generally to cover China in the last couple of years, and which Lisa has proven to be a real expert at, even though she may not particularly love it. <laughs> I've forgotten, you know, so much has happened since 2020. I forgot that you were expelled just before the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, well, I was actually, we were sort of hoping that I might be expelled after the book came out so we could use it for publicity purposes, but that uh, didn't work out quite that way. <laughs> Lots of things changed in 2020. And I have another quite general question for you, um, but I'd be interested both in Josh and Lisa. Uh, what surprised you in your research? What didn't you expect to find that, that you did find? One of the big things that really stuck out to me was at the beginning of our research, you know, we had always viewed the Chinese surveillance state as this very sinister and nefarious thing because, you know, it's state surveillance and who likes to be watched. And as we, you know, as we dug into the topic, I was noticing a lot of state media reports about how, like, the same systems that they were using to crush dissent and oppress a minority in Xinjiang, the same sort of systems were used in a smart city context. Uh, in, in ways that actually made like Chinese residents' lives more efficient and frictionless. And when you talk to the Chinese in these cities, it's quite amazing. Like 
people find surveillance actually very attractive. They know that they're being surveilled, you know, their faces are being taken, images are being taken, but because of the trade-off and, and they get positive externalities from state surveillance in their city, you know, they're very willing to give up their privacy. And I guess I should probably back, backtrack a little bit to talk about what smart cities in China do. And, you know, I, in general, the Chinese smart cities are equipped with like huge networks of camera systems and they have sensors all over picking up all sorts of data, be it GPS from your phone or, you know, mobile signals. But the cameras are really essentially the bedrock of this. The cameras can, in, in many cities, you know, allow better traffic flow, for example, easing up congestion in cities that were very, very congested because their road networks were essentially stuck in like the 80s, but the population has climbed or tripled uh, and you have so many more cars on the road. So con congestion has always been an issue. The same sort of surveillance systems that are used to pinpoint specific Uyghurs in Xinjiang are used to identify persons of interest, such as like fugitives on the run or drug smugglers or mentally ill people that have escaped and are on a blacklist. You know, all the same sort of people you don't want to be walking on the street next to you. So for this reason and for many others that the smart city system provides, like Chinese residents are actually quite willing to give up their privacy and accept the surveillance because they see benefits in return. So I think that was the one part that was really surprising for me, that state surveillance is two sides of a coin. You have the more sinister side that we see in Xinjiang, and you also have the more rosy and bright and attractive side in other Chinese cities. I've always sort of thought that that's an incredibly important point. And, and part of it is also just because the, the problem solving and, and the control aren't, aren't necessarily contradictory. That the people who are actual troublemakers versus the people who are troublemakers by, you know, the definition of troublemaker is politically defined. Can you comment a little bit more on how that impacts not only just the domestic sort of acceptance of the technology, but then also potentially the, the export of the technology and the understanding of the risks associated with the technology as it's exported. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, I mean, as, as Lisa said, I mean, I think that it is generally well, well accepted in China. You know, obviously there's no such thing as reliable opinion polling in, in China, but, you know, sort of anecdotally, uh, you know, most of the people we talked to from the very beginning, you know, in sort of Han Chinese cities were, were pretty either nonchalant about it or, or supportive of, of surveillance. And, you know, I mean, I did, just as a, as a small aside, that's actually not a uniquely Chinese thing in any way, right? I mean, I, like a lot of people, um, you know, one response we got often in China was, uh, well, you know, it's not a problem if you haven't done anything wrong, right? And I, for a long time, I just thought of that as a Chinese response. But then I remember one point while, while working on this book, we, I, I took a trip to the United States and I was in the uh, San Francisco airport. And uh, or maybe it's JFK, I'm forgetting now, but I was standing in line and there was a couple standing in, in front of me and they were commenting on some Western media report about Chinese state surveillance. And, and the wife was like, oh, my God, can you believe it? And the husband, you know, he, he turns around, he's like, well, you know, you only need to worry about it if you've done something wrong. It was the exact same thing. So kind of light bulb went off in my head that this is actually sort of a, a universal human response to this, I think, in some ways. And, you know, so speaking of exports, I mean, Chinese companies are really pushing these systems abroad and they're quite popular. The companies themselves claim to have sold these sort of safe cities or smart city systems, you know, in like hundreds of cities and in, in, in more than 100 countries. I think the independent data that, that, that we found sort of 
suggest that that number is at least in the sort of 80s range, right? And that includes, you know, countries on every continent except for Australia and Antarctica, and basically, you know, and several democracies as well. And I think, you know, the, the interesting thing is, I mean, the appeal for a lot of governments, obviously, if they're autocratic, is that these are tools that China has shown can be used to maintain social control, uh, really, really tight social control. But yeah, but they also have this this kind of utopian branding that also goes along with them, right? There is this sort of attractive, this idea if you're a government that you can sort of be on top of things and you have these systems that automatically spot problems for you and, and just make you more efficient at doing your job and, and sort of keeping everyone safe. And they're usually sort of marketed and, and, and sold to the public as crime-fighting street management sort of systems. They're not obviously sold as tools of political oppression. So um, so they have proven quite quite popular. Thank you. Uh, and actually, just to add on to what Josh said, within the country itself, I remember this incident and it, it really kind of stuck with me. While we were researching the book, I went to an Interpol conference uh, and I bumped into a researcher from one of the Chinese public security universities. And I was asking him about the surveillance data. I said, you know, why are you guys doing this? It's expensive and it's costly and it's such a big potential for abuse. And he turned around and he looked at me and he said, you know, you, you Western media, you're getting it wrong. In China, they saw it as a way because they lacked the manpower to police such a huge population. They saw it as a way to use technology to overcome that shortfall. And after we had that chat, I did, a, I did some research into the numbers. In China, there's one policeman for every 700 citizens. In the US and the UK, the corresponding ratio is 1 to 400. Uh, in the UK, it's 1 to 440. So China really saw like the installation of these systems as just made, making cities smarter and helping them just overcome some of the bumps and the challenges that the local police have encountered because they just don't have enough manpower. On that topic, could you talk a little bit about the way that Chinese authorities view the implementation of smart cities within China. So how did they speak to you about the problem-solving potential of the technology and what the change perhaps was, say, you know, from, from a number of years ago to the present um, in terms of their ability to be responsive? Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. So in our book, we focused on one particular city. Uh, that city is Hangzhou. It's two hours away from Shanghai and not as well known, but Hangzhou is actually a very big city in itself. There's probably more than 11 million people in the immediate city. And you know, there's, there's city sprawl, of course. So the broader Hangzhou region is even bigger. And it's home to the Chinese internet giant, Alibaba, and also home to the world's largest security camera maker, Hikvision. So for that reason, Hangzhou is just very embracing of digital technology. Uh, I, I remember going down to Hangzhou and, you know, as a book author, requested an interview with uh, the Chengguan in Hangzhou. And for those who don't know, like the Chinese policing system, the Chengguan are kind of like junior varsity police. They they don't really have the same power as, right, as full-fledged police to arrest criminals off the street. But the Chengguan's responsibility is to keep the streets clean and orderly. So, for example, if there's a street hawker um, that's unlicensed and hawking on the street, you know, it's the Chengguan's responsibility to clear him off. Or if there's trash in front of a storefront or someone's drying laundry or 
parked a car on a sidewalk, which is something you see very, very often in Chinese cities. Someone parking like their Mercedes Benz on the on the sidewalk. It is the Chengguan's responsibility to clear the streets and just make it like orderly for people. So surprisingly, I got my interview request got accepted, and I was invited to see the Chengguan's system, which was called CDI. And when I went there, it was this like nondescript, you know, beige, like communist era looking building. And the only thing on the outside just said, you know, Hangzhou District Chengguan, and then CDI Operation Center. It was nondescript on the outside, but inside it was pretty amazing. It was like a wall full of plasma TVs, and they were streaming like the scene from outside of、um, hospitals, entrances to schools, like sidewalks. And you know it was just like real time, and there were three people I remember monitoring it. And the guy who was in charge of the system, he was so proud of it, and that was the only reason why I got a, a peek into the system, because he genuinely felt that the system was helping the Chengguan do good in that district. So he said, like they had bought the system from CETC, which is the parent company of Higvision, who has supplied similar surveillance systems in Xinjiang, but for different uses. So they had bought the system from CETC two years earlier and began training the system to recognize trash piles, or you know a street hawk on the sidewalk, or you know objects、uh, that really weren't supposed to belong. And once the AI recognized that that object, it would flag that nuisance object to the Chengguan immediately through an app. So the Chengguan immediately gets an alert. So this guy was saying, you know, in the past we only had. X number of people who could patrol the streets from like nine a.m. to five p.m. Now we have like a twenty-four hour guard watching the streets, letting us know when something happens. He was so excited about it because it, he said, you know, we used to have a ton of street hawkers here. Now we have close to none, and everyone gets along.、Um, but I think the best part of it, and the reason why he was so excited, was if you know the history of the Chengguan in China, the Chengguan are really quite detested. They're not really the police, but they try and act like one. So they end up like big bullies, and often they get into very violent conflicts with people on the street, and typically like people from the lowest rungs of society, right? Vendors who are hawking like lamb kebabs or socks、uh, on the street, or store owners. So this guy was so excited because he said like now there was photo evidence. Of the person who performed the act, like who performed that nuisance act, so when the Chengguan went down, they could always show this person and say, "You know, you did it. Can you please clean it up?" In the past, there was a lot of like push and pull, people denying, and it just led to a lot of friction between the Chengguan and its residents. So, this guy was in charge of City Eye. He he said, "You know, not just did the system help keep streets clean, it also helped us kind of." Just have much better relations with the community that we serve. One of the things that that I observed in in my research was that the the protests involving Chengguan were all, often the most severely violent.、Um, uh, having used to track protests in, in China, and, and and do you think that in in a way then the idea that that technology is both problem solving、uh, in terms of control and problem solving in terms of actual. Genuine problem solving that any government would seek to engage in. I guess the what your research has found is is that yes, that that is sort of effectively working in both ways. But would you say that the problem solving or the course of control aspect is is more prominent or more effective so far? And what's the trajectory? I think if you look at the you know the Communist Party's goal is is sort of this you know ultimately to kind of use data. 
to have enough data and, and sort of the right analytical tools to, to basically engineer society so that runs kind of like a, you know, like a, almost like a guided missile, right? Like it's self-correcting, course correcting, right? And, and that it, um, and I don't think there's any coincidence that a lot of the people who, uh, who sort of laid the intellectual foundations for all of this were themselves uh, rocket scientists. But, you know, that's the ideal. I think in reality, when you look at what's happening in China, the stick function of the surveillance state is much more developed than the carrot function at this point. And I think that obviously comes from from Xinjiang. I mean, well, it also comes from partly from the, the party's history, right? And also it's just easier, you know, the, the sort of straight, hard oppression aspects of surveillance have, have always been easier. They have a longer history. And you, you also see this with the pandemic, with the COVID pandemic, right? They've been trying to do both. They've been trying to use surveillance technology to sort of stay ahead of the virus and head it off and kind of keep people safe and secure that way. But when Omicron came in and sort of started to overwhelm that effort, they then turned to using these surveillance technologies to control people in a much more direct and kind of oppressive way, right? Locking them down, sending robot dogs and drones around to kind of make sure people weren't breaking quarantine, putting sensors on their doors to so that they would have an alarm would go off if anyone who was who, who was locked down tried to try to leave their apartment that sort of thing you know and that's you know it's quite striking to see i i think you know it was also really interesting to, to watch because i think you had people in places like shanghai the wealthiest city in the country suddenly experiencing levels of control that maybe only really uyghurs and tibetans and other minorities had experienced previously you mentioned a part of the book which I really enjoyed, and it was related to some research I had done previously on uh, Chan Shui-sun and engineers who really, are, their their concepts help to explain what we're seeing today. Can, can you talk a little bit about that part of the book as well as, what does that tell you about, oftentimes in conversation about the surveillance state, a lot of credit is given to Xi, Xi Jinping, but actually if you look at some of the history you'll see that there's a sort of a constant there or some, some continuity. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, no, Sam, actually, we owe you, we owe you a really a huge debt of gratitude, actually, especially for that chapter, because, you know, reading your PhD dissertation, and especially the sections on it, on the sort of background of all of this, of the, of the Communist Party's methods of control is really, really enlightening. And it led us to, to Chen Shui-sen, who's this really critical character in the history of the development of the surveillance state in China. And he was a really fascinating figure. He was a missile scientist born in China, but educated partly in the U.S., was helping to build the U.S. missile system and was you know, named the head of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at Caltech at a very young age, but then who, during the McCarthy era, was accused of being a communist and essentially chased back to China, where he then built the Chinese missile system. But in addition to doing that, he he had sort of begun to apply some of his engineering ideas to society. And you know, one of the schools of thought that he ascribed to was, was uh, it's a field that at the time was kind of new called cybernetics, right? And, and it's essentially, I mean, it's a little bit complicated, but essentially it boils down to the study of how information can be used to, to exert control generally, right? In biological systems and mechanical systems. And this really was, you know, formed a, a huge part of his approach to, to missile science, but also, to his, his approach to society, he sort of started to see society as one gigantic sort of complex system, right? That, that if you had enough information uh, and deployed it in the right ways, 
you could sort of engineer and control the same way you would a, a, a missile. You know, and he was spreading these these ideas and promoting these ideas um, in the 70s, well, you know, I mean, throughout his career, but especially kind of in the 70s and 80s. One of his protégés, Song Jian, applied these ideas to the one-child policy, which turned out to be pretty disastrous, but, but it would take a while before anyone realized that. And then, you know, in the 80s, sort of the late 80s, you know, this period of, of intellectual ferment in China, he, Chen had really started to say, you know, promote this idea of, of, of social engineering. And so that, and that idea kind of entered the party school, you know, this idea of systematic approaches to problems. Uh, I mean, became was taught to, to top Communist Party leaders in Beijing when they were going for training. And so it was always kind of in there in the background. And if you look at the way you did, you know, you sort of look at the way the Communist Party talks about social management, social control, those ideas are visible throughout. And what, what I think what is interesting about the Xi Jinping era is that you had, you know, in Xi, you had a leader who was very ambitious and sort of a true believer um, and really wanted to make a lot of change in China and also wanted the party to reclaim its sort of primary role in, in Chinese society at the same time as there were these huge advances in, in AI uh, and in data collection. So just as he was coming to power, the world of technology delivered him the tools to kind of implement that vision. Exactly. I think that's exactly what, what I'm seeing. And it, it's a, a fascinating way to try to understand, I think, what, what is happening today. It's always useful to put that context around it. In the book, you talk a lot also about Western uh, Western technologies and companies and uses of tech, surveillance technology. And my question for you is, when we're critical of, of China and thinking about you know what China's doing, what kinds of conversations do we need to have domestically within our societies in order to avoid reaching a point that we aren't doing the same thing. So I think one of our conclusions from the book is that state surveillance is here to stay. Pandora's box is particularly digital state surveillance in the form of like cameras with computer vision. That's not going away. The Pandora's box has been opened. Right now, what the only thing we can do is really to make sure that like public security agencies and governments use it in ways that are fair and balanced and impartial. So, i.e. not abuse the technology because we've seen what happened in Xinjiang and how abuse of the technology can go really, really awry. So, I, I mean, to point to that, I would probably point to the way the EU and the UK have handled it. A lot of people have asked us, like, what's the difference between Beijing and London, right? London has a ton of cameras too. Well, there there's several differences, you know, one of them being that London's cameras were installed like eons ago and China's cameras were just installed in the last couple of years. That means London's camera network is functioning on very old technology where cameras could only see in one direction. Whereas in China, you have these omnidirectional cameras that look like peaches that kind of hang off traffic lights and uh, lampposts. So the Chinese cameras are a lot more sophisticated. They can turn 360 and they're all equipped with computer vision. Most of them at least are equipped with computer vision or some sort of facial recognition technology that can recognize you for what you are. London's cameras are not as smart. But the other thing that really makes the UK stand out is they have a code of conduct for its use of surveillance cameras. So there are rules that you have to stick within if you are a public security agency, if you wanted to use such technology. And London also stands out because it has an independent oversight body for the use of such technology. This body is under the home ministry of the UK, but they essentially operate pretty independently. And they are the ones that every year they come down to police agencies and they check on how 
facial recognition technology is used, the effectiveness of it, the results, you know, are, are we using these technologies in a necessary way or a proportionate way? So I think when it comes down to regulating technology, that's something we have to put our foot down. In this respect, the EU is also commendable because the EU has a draft AI law that essentially bans any sort of real-time kind of AI computer vision or any sort of AI kind of monitoring of its citizens for law enforcement. Yeah, no, you know, I think, I mean, obviously I agree with Lisa, I think, you know, the challenge for democracies is that China has a very clear vision about how these technologies should be used, and it's a very simple, uh, straightforward message to governments and, and, you know, societies, right, that these technologies, that the governments should be able to use these technologies to, to exert control and manage societies and sort of however they, they see fit, right, and, and democracies in addition to their many other problems these days, sort of don't really have an answer for that. They're sort of struggling to figure out what the democratic use of these technologies is or the democratic approach to these technologies is. And, you know, it's not an easy question, right? I think it's, it's you know, the simplicity is, the, is, is, the, is what sort of, uh, is what authoritarian governments offer, right? They offer simple solutions, leave it to me, don't worry about it, you know, just go about your lives. That's, that's the authoritarian message. I think in democracies, the main thing for us is to put this conversation in front of mind for people, right? To have a really serious debate about this, because I do, you know, I, you know, we really believe that these technologies are so powerful that they they do have the potential to really alter politics and society in ways that could be quite significant. And I, I'm not sure that that's really dawned on people, and that maybe up to leaders to sort of political leaders to make it more of an issue and put it uh, in the conversation more. Um, and then we need just, you know like democracies, we need to sort of deliberate and figure out, you know, what the balance is that we want to strike. And it's not going to be a simple one. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a, a great point to end on. I want to thank you again, both Josh and Lisa, for, for joining us today. And again, the book is Surveillance State. Um, it's available here in Australia on the 13th of December, but it's already available for purchase um, elsewhere. Thank you so much. To wrap up this week, I speak to Lisa Sharland about the prospects for UN reform in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. UN reform has been muted for some time, but the difficulty with affecting substantive change has often led to the easier approach being taken by governance, one dominated by inertia and dealing with the issues of the day. In addition, a desire by countries like Australia to maintain the rules-based order that has existed since the end of World War II has also resulted in a preference not to rock the boat and instead to try to avoid other countries uprooting the system that for so long has seemed to serve our interests. But a combination of current events, such as Russia's war on Ukraine and China's aggression, along with China's success at gaining power in many of these international institutions, and a rise in strategic importance of other countries like India, has highlighted systemic problems with the existing UN system. It's therefore a pleasure to be joined by Lisa Sharland, Senior Fellow and Director of the Protecting Civilians in Conflict Program at the Stimson Centre, and also ASPE alumni. Lisa, welcome back to the ASPE podcast. It's been too long. Thanks, Liv. It's great to be back. Now, Lisa, you have extensive experience with the UN, including representing Australia in negotiations in the UN Security Council and General Assembly bodies. To many, it does seem a little absurd that the backbone of the Security Council, the P5, is still the five ascendant countries from the end of World War II, nearly 80 years ago. This includes the two major power disruptors, China and Russia, having veto powers, but stymie anything contrary to their interests. Could you remind our listeners why the UN was originally established? 
such an important question, I think, because so often we forget we're 80 years or almost 80 years along since the UN has been established. For, for most people these days, what happened in World War II and what happened during that time period, I think, is very distant. The UN was established out of the ashes of World War II. Uh, following what we'd seen in World War I, you'd had tens of millions dead, hundreds of millions affected by conflict and gross human rights abuses. And really, this is where we saw the discussions for what we see as the current day UN system taking place. And they were taking place simultaneously as that war was still being carried out and then following that at its conclusion. And this also came off the back of failed attempts to sort of have international convening body that could address threats to peace and security. We've, you know, many of us are very familiar with the failures of the League of Nations that preceded it. So, The UN sort of came out of that context um, and you had a number of bodies that were set up, some with the executive function like the Security Council that, you know, has a mandate on peace and security issues, the General Assembly that's representative of 193 member states, the Economic and Social Council, a host of specialist organisations. And what we saw in 1945, of course, was the adoption of the UN Charter and a few years after that, the Declaration on Human Rights. So I, I think it's really important to remember here, and this is a quote that UN Watchers that was a favourite of our permanent representative when I was working at the permanent mission is the quote by Dag Hammarskjöld, who was the second UN Secretary General um, and who also died on duty in his role. And he said the UN was not created to take mankind to heaven, but to save humanity from hell. Now, if that is an expectation management in the saddest way, I I think it's something to keep in mind that that's sort of the ambitions of the organisation and and what we're looking at these days. I I really love that quote. And um... Couldn't agree more. I guess it does feel like a long time since the UN has been able to effectively achieve its goals. Most organisations, you know, we all have to adapt as their environments evolve and change. And what are some of the obstacles for reforming the UN to ensure it is fit for purpose going forward? Because it is, still, you know, the cause is obviously still very, very relevant. Absolutely. And you know, I think the UN has adapted. That's something we need to, to keep in mind. And it's very good at creating more layers of bureaucracy. But I think at its heart, we need to remember that the, the UN, as we refer to it, is an organisation of 193 member states and, and several observer states and organisations as well. So although there's a secretariat and civil servants, when we're talking about the UN, it's effectively like talking about parliament with six official languages in place, but no real governing party. Although you could argue that the major negotiating blocks like the non-aligned movement or the G77 wield significant influence in that setting simply by sheer weight of numbers. But when we're talking about reform, you know, really that requires agreement and compromise where all interests are served. And going back to the points we were talking about earlier, the memory of some of those events of, you know, 70 plus years ago are not as strong as they were. And yet at the same time, we're seeing new challenges arise as it relates to human rights abuses, as it relates to conflict, as it relates to climate change. So we've seen in terms of reform at the UN that the current Secretary General, like many of his predecessors, has put forward his own initiatives when it comes to revitalising the development system and their sustainable development goals. There have been tweaks to the peace and security architecture, perhaps the less exciting conversation around management reform. But really, when we're talking about making the UN fit for purpose, I guess it depends on what aspect you're you're looking at. And the one that is glaring at everyone at the moment, of course, is, is Security Council reform. Even representation in the Human Rights Council comes up quite topically as well. And these are some of the areas that garner attention because at the end of the day, they're the most visible when it comes to the action that the UN can take on the ground. I guess on Security Council, we'll get to that shortly, but there was obviously so much talk of reform. Last week, we had the world leaders and foreign ministers descend upon New York for the the annual UN General Assembly or UNGA Leaders Week, something we featured on the ASPE pod before. 
The week featured the noticeable absence of President Putin, who offered an extremely delayed address announcing the partial mobilisation of 300,000 Russian reservists. With Russia's war on Ukraine in focus, this also brought renewed attention to UN Security Council reform. Australia's Foreign Minister Wong called for greater permanent representation for Africa, Latin America and Asia, including India and Japan, whereas President Biden called for permanent seats for countries in Africa, Latin America and the Caribbean. How much, if any, agreement is there on this on the kind of the reform that's needed? There have been several initiatives put forward on Security Council reform over the last few decades. I think a really good starting point for us to keep in mind is that the Security Council originally had 11 members, that is five permanent members and six non-permanent members when it was formed. Now that changed in the 1960s and by 1965 agreement was reached on the addition of four more non-permanent members to the Council, reflecting the growth in UN membership at that time. So we'd seen since the UN was established, it had more than doubled in member states. It was up to about 113 member states um, by the 1960s. Now we're up to 193 member states, so already we've seen a significant growth in membership. So there is general agreement across the board on the need for reform, but like all these things, there is little agreement on the model that needs to be put in place. It has been an agenda item under consideration in the General Assembly for decades. We've seen various models from the G4 model, which proposes permanent membership for Brazil, Germany, India and Japan, plus African permanent members, through to a United for Consensus model, to the L69 initiative discussions in the General Assembly. The, the list goes on and on. The key to support here, of course, will be the permanent five. They don't want to give up power, but I think what we're also starting to see, and we saw this alluded to in the remarks by President Biden, of course, is that there is a recognition that the legitimacy of the council is of concern, which is why we are starting to see some shifts and more open conversations around what reform initiatives might actually be on the table. And I think it's really worthwhile noting that throughout the war on Ukraine and the crisis that we've seen there, we've seen the General Assembly really try to step up to the plate and fill in the gaps where we've seen a lot of lack of traction, uh, lack of agreement um, and blockages within the Security Council. So, for instance, you had discussion in the General Assembly adopting a resolution requiring debate in that body following the use of a veto by the Security Council. So this idea that you'd bring more transparency and accountability to what the council's doing. So you're already seeing efforts to bring in reform around those edges that don't necessarily require that agreement by the P5. Similarly, we've seen initiatives within the council where some of the P5 have recognised that there's a need to not use the the veto in cases of mass atrocities, for instance. That's something that the French have been very vocal on. So these are some of the things that we're starting to see. And I think you'll continue to see some of those tweaks around the edges in pushing that conversation. Um, And there needs to be political space for those conversations to happen. But I think you're also starting to see a bit more energy and discussion around sort of reform of the council more broadly. And at the end of the day, that really comes back to it being seen as a legitimate institution and that's the concern that I think you see from some P5 members at the moment. Yeah and I guess and I do wonder whether it is kind of a turning point you know there obviously has been talk of, of UN Security Council reform for so so long but you know with Russia you know attacking Ukraine and what you've got one of the P5 members maybe this is the catalyst for change hopefully. I wish I was that optimistic because it has been, there's been a lot of issues that have put this on the table, I think, in the past. But I, I think at the same time, we, we have seen coming out of the GA debate this year, you know, a lot of countries raising this question of legitimacy and representation quite sternly. So in your opinion, Lisa, what is the best UN Security Council model? <laughs> is it keeping a permanent membership, but with more or different countries? Is it reverting back to, to what, what you just discussed? What are your thoughts? 
Good question, Liv. I don't really want to hedge my bets, but I'm also going to do that at the same time. But look, I think at the end of the day, a lot of this will come back to process, as do all these things within the UN, the process that is put in place for these discussions. And if people are genuinely committed to having discussions about them, the more that you see countries sort of lay their cards on the table, I think you'll get a better sense of where that scope for discussion or negotiation may be. Something to keep in mind, though, is that any reform efforts in the UN move at a very slow pace. So it's unlikely you'll see reform taking place anytime soon if it does gain traction. But at the end of the day, I think the best model, um, without committing to anything in, in particular sort of structure, is one that obviously can be agreed upon, but also strengthens the legitimacy of the council. And I think part of that requires um, a, a greater regional representation and greater voices at the table in those conversations. We did see at the recent Leaders Week, for instance, the Prime Minister of Barbados, you know, was calling for better representation in international institutions, international financial institutions. We also had calls by Senegal in terms of African representation at the G20. So I think we're going to increasingly see calls for these organisations to be opened up a little bit more to ensure that there's representation for, um, you know, if not billions in, in sort of the globe at the moment in terms of being able to take part in those important conversations. And again, this comes back to whether they're fit for purpose. Are they serving a purpose, particularly for civilians who are affected by climate disasters, by food insecurity? You know, that, that question of legitimacy, I think, is something that uh, we will keep coming back to. Mm. And on the veto power, you've already alluded to, you know, President Macron is kind of, you know, arguing that P5 members shouldn't be able to use veto rights in, in the event of mass atrocities. Um, we've also had uh, Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong telling the General Assembly that it was in never intended that the Security Council veto power would be used to enable unchecked abuse of the UN Charter by the very countries that were given the veto. Should the veto power be scrapped or can it be made more difficult to use? Is the, the kind of the Macron approach a good one? Am I also right in understanding that all of the P5 would need to agree to end or restrict the veto? Yes, yeah, so all the P5 would need to commit to doing that. And I think at the end of the day, anything that results in giving up power is something that you're going to find very difficult to, to put past most countries. And similarly, anything that results in sharing power. You know, it, often we see these arrangements where there are concerns about, you know, legitimacy and, and continuing to hold positions. But I think what we're probably more likely to see is sort of more voluntary codes or efforts to try and restrain the use of the veto, efforts to bring transparency to that process. At the end of the day, though, the P5, as we have seen, are likely to continue to use that where their interests are served. Um, so I think issues around the veto are probably going to be more challenging to address than it is to sort of opening up discussion about wider representation on the council. Mm. <laughs> Seems like a never-ending issue. <laughs> Shifted away slightly from UN Security Council, and in terms of UN reform, there's lots of other areas that you know have issues that need to be addressed. For example, looking at UN General Assembly condemnations, between 2015 and 2022, the UN General Assembly condemned Israel 125 times. This sounds a lot in seven years, but the problem is emphasised when in that same period, Russia was condemned 19 times, North Korea was condemned seven times, Iran six times, and Venezuela and China zero. The US was condemned eight times, so more than North Korea. It's little wonder why, why people do think that, you know, it's feel the system is broken. Do you see any chance that these issues can be addressed? And are there other urgent elements in need of reform beyond the Security Council? So a lot of the issues you've outlined there, you know, relate to, I guess, votes that take place in the General Assembly could also parlay to some extent into the votes that take place in the Human Rights Council in terms of what geographic context they are referring to. 
at the end of the day, you know, we do have to recognise that the UN is a political body and there are going to be votes taken on different situations. The emphasis will depend on the energy and the the different priorities that countries bring to the fore in, in having those conversations. So it's not necessarily going to be balanced in the way that different country situations or political situations are considered in that sense. I mean, in terms of reform at the end of the day, I think a really important point comes back to the ability of different officials in their offices to call out some of the abuses that we see taking place. Now, often they can get stonewalled in doing that. We've just recently had the outgoing UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, of course, released the report um, on her investigation into human rights abuses in Xinjiang in China. Now, that had been, you know, there had been long calls for that report to be released for some time, but there were considerable concerns that political interference was preventing that from being released, and it was released at the 11th hour before she left office. Now, some have argued that that report was not strong enough in sort of what it did in terms of calling out some of those abuses. Now. We see that situation, you know, play out in other contexts as well, but certainly where there's a P5 member or a country that has quite significant influence within the system, you're likely to see political weight brought to bear in terms of that context. So I think, you know, an important part of these conversations is making sure that those independent, and they're meant to be independent, office holders are shining a light on these abuses and doing so in a consistent manner would hopefully in some ways, you know, contribute to a more balanced conversation to some of the more political discussions that we perhaps see taking place in the General Assembly. I think that's a, a, an excellent point and uh, one to, to almost finish on if I can steal you for just one more question. <laughs> so I think the, there's, there's positive signs that, you know, the US is getting behind reform and, and others are as well. It seems like there is a long way to go. And, and given the t- deteriorating strategic environment, I think speed will be critical. Um, you know, we've got in the Australian context, we've got our own defence strategic review, which is looking, you know, at, at the next 10 year period. And I guess, as you said, the UN, the bureaucracy, it, it's famously slow. Despite the challenges, do you think attempted reform is worth it, no matter how challenging? Or is the current system with all of its flaws still the best option for countries like Australia? Look, the short answer, and I, you know, try to be an optimist, but also balance with some realism in in the work that we do um, at the moment in looking at conflict situations and the work of peacekeeping operations is is always to say that, you know, looking at ways to reform and improve the system uh, are always worth it and taking a measured approach to that. You know, I'm always loath to throw statistics at things, but sometimes I think we forget the, the reality of sort of what we're facing around the globe at the moment. You know, there are estimates that there are close to 90 million civilians forcibly displaced across the globe. You know, that's more than three times the population of Australia. There are estimates that 345 million are food insecure with climate and conflict driving those numbers up. I mean, look at what happened in Pakistan. We can't even comprehend these numbers. And when you compare sort of some of the discussions we were having nearly 80 years ago, it's a very different security situation and a humanitarian one that we face at the moment and something that the UN and its agencies do really well is in terms of that humanitarian assistance. It's the work of the World Food Program, it's development programs, it's refugee support, you know, even peacekeeping missions for for some of the faults that we see in those those efforts, you know, deploying to countries where major powers often don't want to do so and in efforts to protect civilians that are facing conflict and huge strife. So I think there are things to keep in mind when we talk about, you know, there are areas that need reform in these multilateral institutions. There's not a doubt that they do. But I think a lot of the interests that are served for Australia and other like-minded countries who want to uphold hold human rights, see the rule of law, support democracies and so on. You know, there there are a lot of those interests being served by the UN as much as it is a flawed organisation. So I I think that's something worthwhile keeping in mind. That's not to say we shouldn't look at how we can reform and improve it and make it more representative and more legitimate to, to countries that don't feel that they have the same 
influence within the system. But I think at the end of the day, we also need to support what mechanisms are there in place to make sure that we can address some of those crises that we see at the moment. And I guess it's not just one crisis anymore. It's we're dealing with multiple crises and that's only going to change as, as we, you know, we continue to see, you know, increasing impacts of climate change. So I think it's more important than ever that governments do work together and, and you know, hopefully we can they can find a way to use the UN in a, in a positive way. Lisa, thank you so much for, for joining us on the pod. Uh, it's, it's definitely been too long, so we will, hopefully we won't have, have such a gap uh, between chats next time. But um, thanks again and we'll speak soon. Thanks, Liv. Always a pleasure. That's a wrap on this episode. This week you heard conversations with Fergus Hansen, Director of ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, and Jocelyn Kang, Program Manager and Technical Specialist with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, Dr. Samantha Hoffman, Senior ASPE Analyst, Lisa Lin, Reporter with the Wall Street Journal, and Josh Chin, Deputy Bureau Chief of the Wall Street Journal's China Bureau, and Lisa Sharland, Senior Fellow and Director of the Protecting Civilians in Conflict Program at the Simpson Centre. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.